How are we going? James, hello. Hang on one second. Close out the word. Hello, James, Claire, Melissa. There are eight of us. Brad, hello, Brad. Barb, hi there. Callum, g'day. Callum, are you the person in Kiev? I am, yeah. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing okay. Yep, still in lockdown. So, other than that, (laughs) pretty good. Can can I just get a clarification from you, Callum? Yeah. Did you, you said the other day you were in lockdown. Mm Mm-hmm. And you've been in lockdown for the last year. Yeah, so I have not left my apartment for, as of tomorrow, 380 days. Exactly. Wow. You haven't left your apartment. Yeah. So, um, do you have to order food in? Yeah, we order, um, my groceries are ordered to my front door. Wow. (laughs) You're right. The reason is, um, yeah, the reason is I, uh, when I was living in Egypt, I was under a lot of stress and had a stroke at 24, I think I was 24. Uh, and so that damaged my, like the, my muscles all over, uh, and my lungs specifically, uh, got really damaged and I suffered from bronchitis due to the pollution over there. And so I've got right. damaged lungs. So I look like a normal 30-year-old, but if I went out and caught COVID, I, I would die. So I've been in lockdown, and we haven't gone under 3,000 new cases in Ukraine since September. So every day we've had above 3,000 new cases of COVID since early September last year. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I could check today, see what today's but is. But you know, but, but, but they're... I saw something today that the 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 Russian vaccine is showing mm-hmm. very good potential. Ukraine won't use Russian vaccine uh due to political reasons. <laughs> oh my word. Yeah. So um, they are Ukraine vaccinating but very very the, well they're using the as the Astra Astra, one. AstraZeneca yeah, that one. Um, and so they're using that, but you know, they said they'd be doing 20,000 a day. Uh, and I think they've got to like 34 in a month or something. So. Yep. Wow. 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 <laughs> so as of today, there was 14,174 new cases in Ukraine. So that's under, that's after 370 days of, uh, 379 days since they first got a first case. Yeah. It's just staggering, isn't it? It's just. It is. I mean, I I was, I was um, talking with an honours student yesterday about, um, um, about, 
well, quantitative research methods and um, uh, uh, and what I find is the sort of unbelievable lack of um, statistical analysis in the epidemiology, which is centrally about statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll, I'll get onto this parcel idea in a second, Bob. Good on you. Um, <laughs> but but the, 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 the thing about this that, you know, to me that's been very annoying watching it from Australia is that there's all sorts of, uh, you know, discussion about infection rates. But until you start looking at these infection rates per capita, yeah, um, yep. they they don't really make as much sense. However, when you do start looking at them per capita, then they be, in certain contexts they become terrifying. I think that's something that, um, and I might offend all of you because I believe most of you are in Australia, but as someone who's been outside, uh, I. Fully commend. So I'm originally from Western Australia as well. So they've done mm-hmm. an outstanding job of completely isolating themselves. Um, <laughs> but the way Australia handled it was really great. But it also gives the people absolutely no understanding of how bad this thing is in in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like I think Bradley said, and we're whining here in Melbourne. I I see that, and the rest of the world sees that, and it's like, what do you guys just stop? You know, you've got however many cases you've got. Um, it it kind of speaks to this uh, egotistical view of the world in a way that many mm-hmm. people are, are fighting about. And like you said, if you look at it per capita, Australia is doing even better in in, mm-hmm. in some circumstances. Um, so. Yeah, I think um, I think it's no, really I agree. interesting. I totally agree, Callum. Your sentiment is absolutely spot on. I mean, you know, when I was crunching numbers um, last year, because I got so um, frustrated with people sort of trotting out just straight up, you know, infection rates and so on, and um, uh, and they were making these sort of strange comparisons between England and Italy and Australia. And I started crunching the numbers and, and realised that Australia's infection rate was, uh, at that time, one one thousandth yeah. of mm-hmm. what the infection rate was in the UK at that yeah. time. Yeah, it's even um, lower and higher you know, now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, the the whole process by which um, the different states um, then went about, you know, insulating themselves um, and pointing fingers of blame and so on and so on, you know, and I think a, a lack of a national response um, uh, coming from Canberra where I think they're just, you know, at sea. Um, at the moment. Um, but when I start looking around the world and staggeringly, because the, the parts of the world that I know, 
um, uh, Sri Lanka and India because that's where I do my work. And um, uh, it, it's sort of striking how how low the infection rates are in both those countries, India yeah. as well, re- yeah. relatively speaking. But then when you start getting figures like what you're telling us from Ukraine, um, it's just it's just mind boggling. I think um, it's a speaks- long term effect. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say the long-term psychological effect. No, oh, yeah. I think I mean, it's how are you going? To, um, well, <laughs> that's why I uh, enrolled in university finally after putting it off for so many years. I was like, well, <laughs> you know, I've spent the last year inside. I, I may as well do something that I uh, at the same time as you know working from home or whatever. So. I um I decided that was going to do it. That's been a positive effect um of of being inside for so long. Going back to what you were saying about the infection rates in places like India and Sri Lanka, I think it's because and I, I I'm not sure of the correct term to use, but I'll use lower socioeconomic or uh, lower socioeconomic countries per se. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know the exact term to use. You may notice that the infection rate, at least I have, is lower, and it's generally because um, they listen to what their government told them to do. They're not as entitled. They said, okay, I get it. I saw a news report from Australian 7 News, how, and they were all acting surprised that Africa wasn't getting absolutely ravaged by COVID. Mm. And they pointed to one country who's only had like this many cases and blah, 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 and I looked at it, and it's because they dealt with the Ebola situation over there and mm-hmm. had a plan, and everyone was following it. They were handing out masks and hand sanitizer along the along what many Westerners would call an undeveloped road, uh, just a dirt road, but they had these things set up, and they fully, you know, um, took it seriously. In China, so I was living in China until August 2019. I lived there for three and a half years. I lived in Wuhan. Um, and I had friends who got put in lockdown in November of 2019. So this whole COVID thing has been in my mind for such a long time. I've yeah, known about time. it. I've known people affected by it. And China is the same thing. You know, they, they're suffering a second wave now. I don't know if anyone hears about that. Um, but originally it was really shocking to see how quickly it had spread through those things. And when I heard that they'd gone to India, I just imagined it was just going to spread even further. But like you said, the infection rate per capita is just so much lower. Mm. Um, and I think it's all about just this sense of entitlement that other people had. And I think, like James said, they care about and live with their elderly maybe. It, it, it might be something to do with kinship groups and how we form connections with other generations. Because they do say like elderly and, you know, the sick. And I have seen people say, well, I'm not sick, I'm not old, I'll be fine, and not really understanding oh, yeah. that connection. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the um, uh, uh, Bruce Kepferer, who's the author of the book that we're reading for this unit, um, he's sort of currently sort of imprisoned. Uh, he, he normally lives in London, um, but he... Um, 
he he and his wife got out and got to um, to Sydney, and uh, they've kind of been stuck there ever since. But they live mm-hmm. they and they they live in Bondi, and he's just been marvelling because you know Bondi is a sort of a young person's place. Yeah, and there's all these young people just saying, "Me, I'm bulletproof." You know, it's party time. Yeah, yeah. And, Over here, uh, there's um, there's a big divide between the older generation who remembers um, the Soviet, the USSR, and the young people who were born in in independence in quotation marks since the 90s. My generation, and they seem to be the worst perpetrators of not listening to the government. One, because they have a history of it not being very reliable, but two, it's that same sense of, oh, I'm young, I'm bulletproof. Some of them quite literally are. They were shot at, you know, in their early 20s. Um, but mm. it, even in the war zone down south, there's people getting just absolutely destroyed by COVID. They've lost 200-something soldiers just to COVID, none to none to battle but to COVID alone. Mm. And it's amazing because... When I think back to the, um, you know, people probably know this, but, you know, the reason why the Spanish flu uh, or the great influenza epidemic of um, 1918 uh, is called the Spanish flu, and it's because the Spain, the, uh, Spain um, kept accurate records. And um, in other parts of Western Europe, uh, the whole thing was um, was sort of hidden and buried um, in relation to the manipulation of the death toll figures from the war that was going on. Yeah. Um, and the added impact of the Spanish or of the influenza um, virus on people fighting in the trenches. I mean, there's accounts that I've read of American troop ships leaving the US in 1918 to take soldiers to to Europe to fight. And basically um, 80% of the soldiers were dead by the time the ship arrived in in France um, from the US. You know, it it was just, it was cutting people down. It It was a virus that targeted young people. I've been thinking for years how the the history of Spanish flu is a history that we kind of forgot about the, the the massive impact of that as a global pandemic has been sort of repressed, but I don't think this one's going to be repressed. I think it's going to be with us um, for a very very long time. Um, now I want us to do. Um, I think. Um, do you want a parcel? <laughs> That's so kind, but uh, at the moment, due to the lockdown, the uh, the mail service doesn't really work, <laughs> especially for parcels. And there is a habit of post people looking at things and going, "Oh, I'll have that before passing it on." So, <laughs> yes. Now I wondered about that, um, but I must, have, you know, the thought of sending um, the thought of sending. Uh, Sending you some Milo and Tim Tams is um, tremendously That's very, very kind. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, to send food stuff through Ukraine, well, you I'll have tell to you, get we'll a give letter it a go, shall we, Callum? 
Uh, if if you don't have a letter, I think it's a letter from Commerce or uh, some declaration. It won't be able. It won't be through the border, and you'll get it returned. Uh, my mum tried to send me Vegemite without a special letter, and it got returned to her. Smashed, but returned. <laughs> right. And I can understand people sending Vegemite back because it is yeah. an acquired taste. It is. Tim <laughs> biscuits. That's another one, you know. I think it would yeah, have broader appeal. I think. I think they'd eat that. <laughs> <laughs> I said back the packet. Oh. And so you're there on your own. No, no. I, my wife is here. She um she's a a teacher. Uh, she teaches from first to year 13 in the British system. Um, and so she originally was teaching from home, but the school bribed the government in allowing them to open the school again as it's a private school. Uh, so she's been going in since uh, the start of this academic year, which was October. August. Oh, August, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, so she's allowed out. She she's allowed out because she's going to work. Mm. Mm, well, and and she is not particularly. She wouldn't die if she got it, but she'd bring it back to me, and I probably would. Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Um. Well, I've, I've I feel obliged to change the subject. This is too. Uncheery for words, but I'm glad we've heard. Yeah, sorry, that. everyone. Um, <laughs> Callum, um, it's uh, you know, hang in there. What can yeah, I say? Thank you. Um, <laughs> and um, but so, thank you, everyone that wanted a, to send me something as well, Bob and, <laughs> and everyone. As, as a segue, um, um, everyone, what we'll we'll go to the end of the story. Oh, now Brad's getting all parochial on 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 us. <laughs> oh, oh dear, these Western Australians are sticking together. <laughs> right. Anyway, what was the last thing left in Pandora's jar? Come on, on the microphone, someone. COVID, no. <laughs> no, COVID got out. No. What was the last thing that's left in the jar? Hope. Thank you, Alyssa. Elpis. Hope. Now, is hope... I mean, you think about it in relation to this pandemic, and we've just heard Callum's remarkable story, frightening story, um, but remarkable and terribly brave, I think, Callum. Uh, But... Does Callum need hope? Do you reckon? Do you? I mean, well, let's let's not. We'll we'll get you to speak for yourself in a second, Callum. We'll ask someone else. I'll ask someone else. Do you think Callum needs hope, Bob? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like hope that sometimes gets through. It's yeah. It's like calories. It's essential because otherwise, why would you keep showing up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes you, it makes you pause, doesn't it? I mean, you know, um, I remember in, 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 
in Dante's Inferno, he gets into one of the hells and it has the very famous sort of sign at the entrance that says, abandon all hope. <laughs> As you enter here, abandon all hope. So the idea of a world, and Dante at least, Dante Alighieri, uh, hell is, or one of the hells, because it's a multi-layered hell in his scheme. Um, one, one of the hells, um, uh, is a place without hope. So it's a condition of absolute hopelessness. Um, and to me, it's one of the remarkable things about the myth of Prometheus is that all of these sources of suffering, um, including COVID, although they don't mention COVID, but all of the sources of suffering, affliction, and so on. And the only thing left was hope. And uh, and then you think, oh, <laughs> is that a blessing or a curse? Well, that's what I was going to say. Um, my hope changed to determination because I feel as though... Hope is something that can be poisonous in in a way. Um, and it's not just to do with COVID, although that's how we're kind of linking it. Hope, I feel, if released into the world, if hope is constantly dashed, it could be something that is detrimental to, to you. You can still have it and you can have it again, but at some point I feel like it turns to determination and that's why it was in Pandora's box one of these things that could be poisonous like all the others that could be harmful yeah good point um is yeah it, it's not in the jar for by accident is it is hope no exactly it's like a positive outlook or is that um or is how do we define hope exactly because it's kind of a construct say some more james um I was just wondering, like a positive outlook is something uh, you give yourself, uh, but hope doesn't feel like hope. Feel hopelessness um, is like a submission to your situation, to a bad situation. Um, whereas you could choose to take on a positive outlook and and make the best of any any situation. I'm just wondering how we're defining hope. Well, here's Bob's. Suggest you want to get on the microphone, Bob? Sure, why not? Good on you. I, what were you saying? I just think that it's um, it's like it's not motivation. That's not the word I want. It's more than that. It's um, if you don't have hope, like that's when you don't get out of bed in the morning. That's when you don't um, go and make sure you've got enough food for the day. It's um I think that it sort of counterbalances all of the illnesses that were in the jar because, you know, if you've got an illness that's making you so sick, it's easy to want to just give up. But if you've got hope, you're going to fight the illness. I don't know. It's like the yin and yang in the jar, I think. Yeah. Okay. So you see it. You see it. You don't see it as one of the great afflictions. I mean, the critical thing is that 
according to this story, it doesn't escape from the jar and thereby remains a human preserve. And I think that's something that Vernon is getting at in his paper. Humans have hope. Animals don't have hope. Animals don't live in the expectation that things might get better, which is how, James, I would define hope. Uh, that expectation of the possibility of improvement. But in, according to this version, animals have sickness and affliction and mortality, like plants do. Uh, I think to term, uh, I have trouble with the chat message. I'm going to ask Claire to come back and speak on that one. Um, uh, Hello. So animals and Hello. plants. One second, Claire. Animals and plants have have ha, they have all of the afflictions, but they don't live with hope. Um, the gods live without any of the afflictions because they're immortal. And they don't have hope because it doesn't matter. But humans have both the afflictions and hope. So for Vernon, the critical thing about the myth is it positions humanity between humans, uh, sorry, the, the gods and, and, and animals. Yeah, it's a middle ground. Yes. Now, Claire. Yes. Yes. Hello. Um, yeah, I was just thinking that from my interpretation, hope is just kind of the middle ground, like um, how I put it is the that, you know, you hope better, yeah, hope for a better day and just sit there and wallow in it or the determination is the actions to do it, like, um for example, if you've got depression, you can hope that you'll get better or hope you'll, that you'll be happy one day. But the determination is the step to, you know, go get medication or uh, go see a counsellor and actually do, motivate the change. Mm-hmm. That was is it also, I mean, if I think about it in relation to, say, COVID, is it... Um, um, I mean, a lot of people have put a lot of hope in a vaccine. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's why, for myself, my hope that the it, it was mutated, it, it changed. My hope that the uh, virus wouldn't reach Ukraine changed. It, it disappeared. There was no hope of that afterwards. It can be destroyed, and it can be upsetting when that hope is 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 destroyed then my hope was it wouldn't spread very far would the government would lock down it and it would be efficiently dealt with in the city and then that hope was dashed and then it slowly became my hope was just to and this might be a bit dark but just survive until there was uh an immunization that was the hope and it mm-hmm. became a determination over time. It wasn't, I didn't just hope that it would happen. It became 
a determination that I would I would reach that end. And bringing it back to why I think it was in the chart, it can, like I said before, that hope can be poisonous if you have too much of it. In the sense, as like Claire said, if you have depression and you just sit there and hope, that's poisoning you. That hope, oh, I hope it will get better. Without enacting on that hope, in, without that uh, determination, yeah. it, it can be something that could be used to completely dash anyone. You know, it could cut. Mm-hmm. And I think you're, because James has put in a message that about uh, picking up on Claire's point that hope is the expectation and positive thinking is the determination. I think that's a, it's a good, um, it's a good distinction. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's expecting the external situation to change. Um, one of the things, I don't know if you, any of you people will agree with me about this, but one of the things that I found absolutely staggering uh, was um, how we sailed into Christmas and the New Year last year and and suddenly I was hearing on the television uh, all these people saying, oh, 2020 is, is a year that we're going to forget and, and 2021 is going to be better. And did... And, and I thought, I thought, when I started hearing people saying that, I thought, you know, it is amazing how this virus has got a diary. You know, it's got a, it's wearing a, it's wearing a watch and it's saying, Oh, hang on. It's 2021 now. Time for me to go. December 31st, um, gonna clock off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was going to be the 2020 thing. <laughs> It's a, it's an amazing application of a random number. Um, it's a little bit like the way the bushfires that I was watching, um, uh, in towards the latter part of last year in the eastern parts of Australia. I did marvel at how these bushfires only burnt on one side of the state. Uh, judging from the various emergency services websites, they're fine. <laughs> they all worked on state boundaries. It was a kind of a bureaucratic mentality uh, at work. Um, and uh, I feel that that bureaucratic mentality is also there in imagining that viruses follow the calendar. But, but then you sort of you stop and you think, yeah, actually, it really makes you stop and think, well, why do we celebrate New Year? You know, what are we doing when we celebrate New Year? And you, whether you're making your resolutions or whatever, what are we actually doing? Well, in Chinese, the saying "新年快乐" um, is, you know, to hope someone a new, to hope them a, a new good year. It, yeah. Hope. Yeah, Matt, speak up. Um, yeah, I think we're sort of um, creating a cycle that gives a possibility that things can change, I guess. 
um, a new beginning at the beginning every year, at least, um, at least in sort of spirit. And so you get that sense then that even so, in something like our, our celebrations of New Year, um, which then raises a really interesting set of questions about human human behaviour, bearing possibly pushing into the second half of this unit as to why humans perform rituals and whether there's not an element of hope in the way that we perform our rituals, whether it's a wedding or a graduation ceremony. Uh, I'll I'll just take the question. Uh, Brad, your hands up. Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, it was, it's interesting, like saying um, with the new year, like with your lecture today and you're saying, um, what's that, like the, I can't remember the word, homogenous with the, the, the snake? Kind of like regenerating? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't know, it just, it just popped in my mind then just to think about that. It's like when we come to that new year, it's like we're kind of regenerating in a sense. Because even myself, mm-hmm. I think like, oh, yeah, we come the new year can kind of rebirth in a sense, you know what I mean? Become into that different, like let go of all the crap from the year before and kind of move on to a new beginning in a sense. So I was just kind of putting it into context with what you were saying today with the Mm. Greg stuff, yeah. It's, yeah, well, you get that concept, very strong concept um, of of eternal return. Yeah. Um, and this is built then around certain cycles, seasonal cycles, the appearance of certain astrological systems, um, as well as, you know, harvest festivals, uh, and so on. And you get this sense of re- repetition. And out of that repetition, you get the idea of renewal. And the idea of renewal you look at it and you think, well, yeah, I mean, renewal, that's, you know, that's a very hopeful, that's a very hopeful condition of being is, is one where you sense your, your renewal, your capacity to renew yourself. I want to, now I want to get sort of rude. Um, and to do that though, I'm going to, to pick on someone who's been relatively quiet, but I'm picking on you partly because you've been quiet, Melissa. But also because uh, you have a female name, and I'm wondering if that if then you identify as female. Yes. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, there's a very tentative yes, because you're thinking, ah, uh-huh, where's he going with this? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And also, they're I'm very skeptical. Where's he? What's he going to do next? Well, what he's going to do next, Melissa, is he's going to ask you about Pandora. And it does seem to be, just speaking of you as a woman, um, it seems to be all your fault. Yeah, I noticed that, like, in the reading. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think? I think it, it actually said, like, ripping that evil and, like, that's why... Pandora was created, and so. What did you think? Did you think my, my did it, did it make you think bloody hell? Is this a misogynist myth? 
Yes. I was just like, cause either it was, um, men could have, was it grains or women? So. Uh, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> they had a, they had a choice. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you kind of, you look at this and you think to yourself, who, who bloody dreamt this up? Yeah, and it's weird as well because, like, this, the myths of the gods was all about sex, but then, like, women are evil for humans. So I was just like... Yeah, was it that women are evil or women are capricious, untrustworthy? I think they wrote bitchy as well. Deceptive. Barb's coming. Get on the microphone, Bob. Don't, don't. Jump on the microphone and, and tell us. I found it funny that it was like, yeah, we need them to bear our children, but sheesh, you have to feed them and they're not going to work out in the field. Um, they're just going to, you know, sit around your house and then you still got to feed them and they're going to, oh, and the whole bitch thing, honestly. <laughs> Bitch, yeah. bitch, 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 bitchy. I mean, sheesh. Yeah, hurt my feelings. It's reading really hurt my feelings. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Bob. And I'm going to just ask then, Alisa, uh, sorry, Alyssa. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alyssa, are you there? Oh. Ah, yes. Here we are. Okay. I just want to ask okay. Alyssa. How about you, Alyssa? Do you identify as female? Yes, I do. And how about, how was your, what about your reaction to this? I was actually reading it uh, with my partner was behind me and they turned around midpoint and and started on a rant. So um, it was, uh, you do, you find it, it made me think, who did write it? And mm-hmm. um, the reasons behind it, and I thought I can't go down that path because I'm not going to go anywhere. Um, so tried to understand why they were saying uh, depicting women in these ways. Mm. So, am I right in thinking that you know you, Hesiod is now sort of well down on the list of people you'd like to be stuck on a desert island with? <laughs> Mm. It'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you could sort of say, "Hmm, I don't know that I'd like to be stuck on a desert." I don't know that I'd like to be stuck on that desert island with Hesiod. By the way, I think he was pretty boring, but I'd also enjoy the opportunity to um, uh, to argue with him. Yeah, it's about and understand, say, you know, understand a bit more of their point as well so even if i may not agree with it i would like to understand where it came from yeah thanks Alyssa. i'm going to now i'm also i'm also wanting to i'm sorry i'm i'm picking on the women uh i'm just interested in your reactions uh to hear your reactions to this particular 
um, paper and the discussion. And Barb, I think you've got a good point there. You picked up on this. You know, what's all this stuff about bitchiness? The nature of this bitchiness. I, I actually think he's referring to female dogs. Yeah, and that's yeah. implied. Yeah, well, it raises an interesting question. Why is it that the word bitch and bitchy and bitchiness is, um, A, associated with female dogs um, and and women? Well, I recently watched one of those swear shows on Netflix and it, like, explored the origins of um, where the word came from. And I am not prepared enough that I... If I thought, I would have watched it again after reading it. But the issue with that, the use of that word is that it's derogatory towards women today. So mm-hmm. my offence at the use of the word bitchy and bitch and all the rest of it is more set today and that it's, Yeah, it, it's very derogatory towards women today in today's society. But when this was written, that wasn't necessarily the case. Like you say, it may have been about something else, but it kind of, like I say, it hurt <laughs> my feelings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not so sure. Um, I know that it was written in French, but, yes, oh, Melissa, yes, your hand went up and down. Oh, uh, yeah, I just want to say um, I think the opposite um, when it was written, I feel like it would have been more offensive, and now I don't find it that offensive, to be honest. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's got me thinking about, you know, expressions, American swearing expressions like a son of a bitch. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't really be surprised to hear someone say that. Um I can't say I would be offended if someone called me a bitch, I guess. Like, there's worse words to use, I suppose. Mm. And it's interesting, too, when a man is accused of being a bitch. Yeah, I think that's worse, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, but that's like but, someone calling him a female and that being an insult. Well, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, exactly. Because being female shouldn't be an insult because we're great. But you're responsible for all of the suffering in the world. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Who, said, who, who said that? Who said that long drawn out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was me. That was perfect. Um, Oh, that was fantastic. Hey, without, you, without women, men would not survive. So, And I think this is what the story is exploring <laughs> too, isn't it? You know, that it's looking at the fact that it's, it's looking at the whole problem of mortality, immortality, and giving birth, you know, and one of the things that I like about Vernon's paper is he picks up on certain critical points, like so Prometheus deceives Zeus and tricks him 
into taking the poor sacrifice. And Zeus responds by saying, right, okay, well, I'm going to deny you uh, the ability to create fire by thunderbolts, how I do it. And and you look at that and you go, oh. And so what he's doing, and, and Fanon picks up on this, so Prometheus then goes to Hephaestus's forge and steals fire from the forge. But the critical thing is that it's the fire that must be fed. You must feed this fire. You don't just click your fingers and boom, you've got a fire. You've got to feed a fire. And so the fire is a mortal fire as opposed to an immortal or eternal fire. And so it's not just Pandora who brings mortality in the form of sickness. Prometheus brings mortality in the form of the stolen fire. And this is when Vernon says that there's a a symbolic parallel between, on the one hand, Pandora, and on the other hand, the fire, that there's an identity between them. And moreover, there's an identity between Pandora and Prometheus's sacrificial offering, which is the gift, which is also a deception. And so Vernon is picking up on these points. And I look at that and say, you know, it's not just making rude remarks about women. It's also making rude remarks about fire. I'm not denying that it's making rude remarks about women, but it seems to be exploring, it's not just exploring gender relations. That's the point that I'm trying to get at. Seems to me that this is a myth which is exploring through thinking about gender relations and thinking about male and female, it's exploring a whole lot of other issues about feeding, mortality, and so on, as well as deception and so on. So I don't know, I don't think it's just that women get a bad rap in this story. But yes, Callum. I feel like I um, I found it really interesting, the parallels between these myths and the myth of the um, Garden of Eden and the way that we became mortal in um, Christian mythology. Uh, it was due to, it was all a woman's fault again, uh, of course, and it's because she didn't listen to the man and went and ate the apple and their punishment was mortality. And then... Um, the way that women are still bear this punishment is by uh, having a menstrual cycle and all of that. I I felt it it had that similarity between mm-hmm. um, the the relationship of mortality being brought to the world of the immortals through the actions of women, and I I, I found it interesting that that seems to be a constant in a lot of uh, cosmology and um, mm-hmm. and creation myths and yeah, I don't know, I don't really know why. I just I know that I found that 
I, I didn't I didn't know much about Prometheus. Uh, sorry, not Prometheus. Um, Pandora's story, other than she had a box and it was bad. Um, so yeah, I found those parallels very interesting, and I wondered if um, the the women in here also feel the same. If if they're similar with uh, are familiar with the Eve story of how she she betrayed her man and she was a drain and became a drain and, and stuff like that. Mm. Thanks, Callum. You 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 picked up on one of the other questions in the discussion list. Good on you. Uh, yeah. Brad. Um yeah, even when I was um reading that with connecting it to uh two thousand one Space Odyssey, I saw um in a sense I was thinking myself I was like well the way technology is uh taken like man has become like more very um attached to technology I see that's like a uh kind of like a seduction as well in a sense like like how they were coming across in the, the Greek side of things with the woman being seductive and um having these uh kind of uh What's the word? Um, having these like um, kind of oh, I can't think of what I want to say. So I'm trying to explain it. Have these faults. So with, with technology, it's kind of like a seductive as well in a sense. Jay, everyone understand? Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's what I was thinking today. But I don't know if I've explained it properly. Sorry. No, but it's a very interesting point that you're picking up, and it, and it makes me think, you know, and I'm thinking uh, about um, uh, a comment that was made on the discussion board, you know, where the people type, uh, you know, write their, their, their discussion points for this week, and somebody picked up on a more recent reading from the Greek story of Odysseus, you know, the, the Odyssey, uh, where Odysseus, um, arranged off to be tied to the past, um, this place which is infamous for these figures called the Sirens. And the Sirens sing a song, and that causes sailors, when they hear the song, to steer their ships towards the rocks and then they they get wrecked on the rocks and die. And it's typically presented as a seduction and a female seductiveness, but the person made the post where they said that there's another interpretation that says that the song of the sirens was a song that was promising all knowledge, that you would have all knowledge, so that you would become an all-knowing being and the parallel with the Eve story or the Garden of Eden story is that this is the fruit of the tree of knowledge and that humans have been told don't touch the fruit of the tree of knowledge but they're tempted Precisely, to to be all-knowing. 
I think that relates to the same way as the gods are all knowing. It again can relate back to the imitation of exactly. man to be the god. Yep, yep. That's exactly right, Cal. That's exactly it. And that and that and to be all knowing may be that um uh would be abandonment of hope as well, uh as in the entrance to uh, Dante's Inferno. That's it. Yes, because you would you would have all knowledge. Um, it reminds me of a, one of my favourite cartoons by the Australian cartoonist Michael Lunig, uh, which was a cartoon of a uh, you know of a of a, a sort of a classic traditional stereotypical uh, gypsy caravan, and. Uh, and, and, and sitting on the back steps of this gypsy caravan is, is, is a, is a woman, you know, with a very sad look on her face, but she's that classic, you know, big earrings and she's got this crystal ball in front of her and the sign on the caravan says, and so she's a classic, you know, stereotypical fortune telling gypsy woman. Um, and the sign says, uh, business for sale, uh, present owner doomed. Well, I think that's really funny, but then <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank two people. Um, it's the, you know, the, the, the notion that if you have that knowledge of the future, um, then you don't have hope. You, you, it, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. But the point then that comes out of this story is that in the story of Eve and the condemnation of Eve, it's one way of looking at it is, you know, oh, bloody women. Uh, you know, it's bloody women. They've done it again. You know, they screwed everything up. Um, another way of looking at it is to say uh, that Eve, the first woman, was more human than the humans. And that what she wanted was knowledge, where Adam was a good citizen and he was saying, no, I'll stay stupid, thanks very much. I've been told to stay stupid and I'm going to stay stupid. But then gets seduced, gets tempted not by the female, but by the idea of being all knowledge. Yes, Callum. I think it's also important to note that Eve was tempted slash seduced by the snake, which is a phallic representation in, in some senses. It can represent yep. a, a phallic thing. And that it's Satan at that time, and Satan is often... uh referred to as a masculine figure. So realistically, mm-hmm. Satan was the seducer, uh, the original seducer. So it's a man seducing. It's a man's fault, just that Eve took it. it, it um, yeah. Yeah, I think I, it, it's not the there. woman in I, the seducer. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, I, I'd be careful. I'm Melissa. Um, wasn't Eve... Uh, unsatisfied in Eden though, like she wanted more. 
Yeah, she wanted knowledge. Yeah, she wanted so... knowledge. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about the serpent um, in in the Christian uh, creation story, a myth, um, is that that serpent, the very word Satan, um, is a kind of a later um, application of a term. Application, yeah, sorry. Um, it's a word that means adversary. So a satana was an adversary. So if you went into court, you always had an adversary. It was a satana. Um, but the serpent in that origin uh, myth is a classic example of a figure we'll be talking about next week called a trickster. And tricksters are deceiving creators. Uh, Prometheus is a trickster in that he is a deceiving creator. He deceives Zeus with the sacrifice. He deceives Zeus with the theft of fire. Um, He's a classic example of a trickster um, figure, as indeed is the serpent. Now, you get other types of serpents. I think very importantly, you can step back from that and let's take out the question of good and evil and put that to one side, because in many respects, the application of good and evil to this is a um, a kind of a later attribution, which is then associated with the Satan, the devil, and so on. As the trickster figure, it's, it's slightly different, in that he is simply an ambiguous being uh, who calls up, the differences between God and ma- and the human, man, Adam and Eve. I can, the interesting thing then, the, the interesting parallel that you've picked up, uh, how, well indeed, how, yes, absolutely Brad, how the computer in 2001 is an example of that. Uh, but What we see then, you know, to me, what's, I just want to sort of just change the level of discussion for a second. You recognize that you drew that parallel, Callum, between the Eve myth and the uh, Pandora. And so we see that relationship between the two. And we can see that in these mythologies, they're all they're all kind of reflecting on each other, just as you are. So, what you're doing is mythologizing, because you're bringing these different myths together and developing new stories or new narratives. Call it fan fiction if you like, but it's mythologizing. Because what you're doing is you're thinking through these myths. And so when you connect one with the other, you know, joining the dots, as it were, you're employing a similar kind of thinking as what you get in myth itself. And to me, 
that's what's really exciting because we're not simply, you know, talking about myths. Uh, we're mythologizing myths. And as we do that, we're actually getting closer, not further away, to Hesiod and Homer and whoever and whoever. See what I mean? We're actually, we're not, so we're not studying Hesiod. We're becoming like Hesiod. Do people see that point? Participants, absolutely, Matt. And you then sort of stop and think, oh, shit. (laughs) I went to do a subject at uni about myth and ritual and I got turned into a myth maker in week three. And at that point, Rowan said, job done, we can all go home now. Now, feeling a bit ripped off? <laughs> Sanity. What do you mean, Bob? Oh, Rowan, you Sanity. It's got Zeus. It's a whole new myth of the myth. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Olivia Newton John, Wallace uh, Gates. I never watched it. Oh, I know Gene Kelly. I'm a big fan of Gene Kelly, but I never quite felt that that film was going to be a good Gene Kelly film. No, there's no Gene Kelly. Oh no, there is Gene Kelly. Oh, there oh, is. Oh yeah. yeah. Whereas, say the Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. Oh mm. my God, he yeah. is. Amazing. No, he he does a nice little shoe shuffle insanity. Maybe you should revisit it. Okay, okay, all right, all right. I I also didn't like the song. I have to confess. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, but look, um, I think we've covered basically the kinds of questions that I wanted to cover. There is one last question that I wanted us to think about, and that was the relationship between myth and ideology. Um, And you can, what I think that this stuff shows, I mean, James, you made a very interesting remark. I think you were being rude about your dad. Yeah. And that you said, you know, that I I think at that point I sounded like your dad. Yeah, sounded like him. So um, he's better now, but uh, when I was growing up he was, uh, probably the king of all misogynists that, that I knew. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm better than him and hopefully my son's better than me. And, um, you know, we were working our way towards, uh, reintegrating ourselves back into society as, uh, decent. <laughs> but the people. critical, but the point though, the, the, the thing that I want to pick up though is simply that, you know, it's so, it's so easy to take a myth and move into an ideological position. And I did it. And I did it quite deliberately and mischievously 
you could say I was doing a little bit of a Prometheus. So what did I do? I said, oh, now I want to pick on the women in the group. And so I then set about asking each member of the seminar who identified as female how they felt about this. Right now, what I was quietly doing was injecting gender ideology into the discussion. Not in order to make a position and say, you know, see, now all you women, don't you recognize it? You're all stupid. No, I wasn't saying that at all, not at all. What I was trying to get at was how these myths can provoke us so readily. And they can do so, provoke us, not just, you know, your dad or my dad, um, or many of us and many of our dads, I think, um, not simply for that, but just how they kind of get us agitated. And we realize that we're pushing into various ideological positions. We're resisting ideological positions. We're trying to work out where we stand in relation to these ideological positions. And I think that's all good. But to me, that's also part of the whole myth-making process. Myths are a way of thinking about our world. And I've got to say, Callum, you may not be sort of so tuned into this because you're in Kiev, but the gender politics that's been going on in Australia's federal parliament for this last week or so, I, I'm imagining everybody else has been kind of alive to it. Yes, Matt. James, yes. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Yeah, oh, my God, yes. It's absolutely astonishing what's going on at the moment. Source of extreme anger, totally messed up. Yes. You know, and you, you know, but it's what I'm saying is that you read this myth of Prometheus. Yeah, Melissa, exactly. But you read this myth of Prometheus. It's very hard to kind of put those current events and circumstances off to the side and say, oh, let's have a look at the myth. You know, it's it's all around us. In the same way, we had in this seminar, I thought we started off with a beautiful chat with you, Callum, about lockdown and the, you know, Exactly, Bob, totally. Um, and But we started off with a beautiful discussion about lockdown, COVID, the differences in different parts of the world. How can you not think about that when you're hearing about Pandora and her jar? You know, so whenever we have these myths, we we never come to them cold. Yes, Matt. Um, I was just going to ask, am I right in thinking that, like the Romans, that the Greeks pretty much excluded women from the political arena? Sort of talking about the connection between politics and society and, and our myth-making? I I wrote that down uh, last week when I was reading the Detienne piece, uh, and someone replied to me, and 
I said, I think I said it on the discussion board that I found it really interesting that these women, these women figures were so powerful in, in myth. But I remember from a high school, um, project that women were completely, they weren't even allowed to speak about politics. They could be punished if they, if they even spoke about politics. Um, so yeah, that's, I was going to bring that up as well, Matt. I, I found it so interesting that these women have power and we're a reflection of the gods and we build an aura, so it's a reflection of, of the mountain. But women can't go in any, anywhere near it, even though they are ones of great power in, in myth. Um, but we still transfer the negatives, like Pandora being the source of all problems, of, onto women. I, I, I was just about to ask the same question. Um, uh, the, <laughs> I've got a terrible answer for this question though, Matt, and, and which is yes and no. Um, and here I'm, I'm relying very much on, um, on the work of a friend of mine. Uh, I mentioned a, an article of his today called The Triumph of the Ethnos about, you know, Greek ethnicity and Greek nationalism after independence and that process whereby, you know, Western Europeans denied the Greeks their Greekness, um, their ancient Greekness. Uh, but Roger Eust also wrote a book on women in, in ancient Athens. Um, and that goes back to his time as a classicist. Um, the idea that that women were totally totally cut out from the from the um, uh, from the political and and the economic is not entirely true. What is closer to the truth is that it was more selective. Um, and that within those terms, there were limits in the public domain. And those limits in the public domain were not um, sort of simply exclusionary, but more about compartmentalising. Um, and very importantly, there were major social distinctions within ancient Greek society in terms of elites, commoners and slaves. And so to think of it purely in terms of gender differences, but at those different social levels, you get different emphases at different social levels. So that the elite women, for example, um, we're up there with those goddesses. Right. Yeah, that's interesting because I wasn't sure whether that was something that was totally true or how much was a projection of our own society. Um, like I know many people like to project our own society onto the ancient Romans and Greeks, so I wasn't 100% sure mm. whether I was right on that. That's interesting. Yeah. And the other thing, and coming back to what Brad, uh, to what um, Brad's been saying about within um, First Nations cultures, um, 
I agree with you, Brad, but I also think that there are really important historical transformations in uh, First Nations cultures um, about, and, and this is not unusual in a lot of colonial contexts where you've had these, you know, dominant colonizers invade and disrupt existing social systems. And oftentimes, one of the things that they disrupted quite actively uh, were traditional patriarchies. And in that process of disempowering whole populations, you get a, a certain process of empowering of women in those populations. And so that they're not, they're not, they're not static entities, but they're historical things. And so the strength of a, a lot of First Nations women in, in our society today is a reflection of colonial processes and colonial histories. I'm not saying that it was just all totally, you know, dominated and dominating, uh, not at all. Um, but the colonial experience is important. But yes, Brad. Um, yeah, that's that's really true because um, I was talking with an elder a while back and we were saying how with uh, especially family violence with our communities and um, in a sense it was kind of like our, our – in these days in, in modern uh, Australia with us blackfellows, it's kind of in a sense – because of um, our men were kind of restricted, uh, these days restricted in, like, basically taken off to a lot of the uh, camps and that, like, with uh, back in Perth, wudge them up at Rottnest Island and chained up. And so the women had to empower themselves because the men were literally in chains and and taken away, the, these old lawmen, which were which were the, the givers of the, uh, the, the family, and they were taken away, so the women had to, in a sense, uh, pick up the pieces. And even today, like, we're still trying to empower men to become uh, stronger because even in, in what, 2021, we're still trying to pick up the pieces from that. So that's why you probably see, like, Lydia Thorpe and a lot of mm. Aboriginal women. Uh, and, yeah, like, even in the protests, you'll see a lot of the women really at the forefront. And it's, we've just got to try and get our men back to, a strong sense, and, that, and I think that's where a lot of the um, feeling of shame and guilt, and as men, and the family violence comes in because that, that really, it's really ingrained disempowerment, like you said, Ron. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sure, James. Thanks very much for your contributions today. They were terrific. And um, and really, we should all be going. But um, and this is a, to me a fascinating discussion because. I also think that uh, so much of the violence um, and of, of domestic violence that we're seeing um, right around Australia, I think, and I th also I think globally, actually, uh, relates precisely to uh, disempowerment. Um, uneven employment structures, um, you know, part-time employment structures 
so that you know and i and i look here in geelong for example at the um at the the areas that traditionally found employment in manufacturing and the manufacturing is all gone and the levels of domestic violence are really high and when you say disempowered it sounds like you you you're giving a uh, you know, you, you're sort of get making an apology for the violence. I'm not making any apology for the violence at all. The violence is absolutely outrageous and wrong. Uh, but this violence is the violence that emerges from disempowerment. And it doesn't fix the problem. It, in fact, it amplifies the problem. Because it then is a violence of disempowerment which is, re- is wrought upon and set upon the disempowered, you know. Uh, so women and children become the objects of this powerful, incredible violence, which is a violence of disempowerment. Uh, you know, it's a, and then, you know, the snake is the, eating itself. It's eating itself in that scheme. But anyway, that, 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 you know, probably a subject for another subject, um, not a myth and ritual subject. Um, and, um, but it's nevertheless, I think it's critically important that we, that we take it up, you know, that when we read this myth of Pandora and Prometheus and, and so on. And as Bob, you said, you know, and you read those comments about bitchiness, you know, You're you're coming to the table after a day of looking at the news or reading articles or doing something or other. You can't put it aside. It's it's there all the time. And I think we should just, you know, recognise that and think through it. We don't think in spite of it. We think through it. And so next week we're talking about the trickster, actually. I think, Jung on the trickster. So we'll do that then and we'll talk more and it will bear upon our world in ways. Till that time, though, Callum, take care, mate. If you're absolutely sure about the parcel, but you let me know. Send me an email. I'll arrange a helicopter. The Deakin, the Deakin University helicopter. (laughs) But no, seriously, you let me know. And everyone else, thanks very much, everyone, for your participation today. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Ron. And I'm signing off. Okay, bye-bye, everyone. See ya.